Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. For 35 days, Oregon's legislature will meet in Salem, and tensions and questions abound. Will Republicans walk out of the Capitol again? Will they head to Idaho? And this time, will it be the House delegation? Can Democrats find a way to pass their long-desired cap-and-trade climate change bill? And even if they do, is it too watered down to make any difference in the state's greenhouse gas emissions? I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with The Oregonian. Up next, a conversation with Hillary Baroud, the Oregonian state government and politics reporter, and Ted Sickinger, a government accountability reporter, about this year's legislative session. We talked about the climate change bill, the state's rosy budget situation, and the significant number of lawmakers retiring or moving on from Salem. Thank you both for taking the time uh, ahead of the session. I know uh, you're both very busy. I really appreciate it. Sure. Sure. Happy to be here. Hillary, for the uninitiated, can you explain why the legislature is meeting now and and why it's uh, an abbreviated session? I think some folks might have trouble keeping track of this stuff. Sure. Oregon's legislature, uh, until 2012, they were officially at least only supposed to meet every other year that was in odd numbered years so last year was one of those longer typical sessions that we've had since the 1800s Um, it's about five months it's over five months usually Mm -hmm. and back uh, in the early aughts or the mid aughts there was a discussion about whether that was enough and whether we had some issues especially going into the Great Recession where we just weren't able to um, address everything that needed to be done every other year. Of course, we had a lot of special sessions Mm -hmm. and there wasn't the um, strict limit on the length of sessions that we have now where the long session has to finish up by a certain time. So voters eventually did approve every other year sessions and in these shorter years, we're limited to 35 days. So it's supposed to be just for budget issues, emergency stuff. Okay. And so you've spoken to lawmakers, obviously, and kind of gotten the sense, um, I would imagine, the mood from Republicans and Democrats as they head back to work in in Salem. What are you hearing from the two-party leadership? There's a lot of uncertainty. I think that people might not say this, especially on the Democratic side, but they're a bit on edge because it's just so uncertain whether the Republicans are going to flee the Capitol again. <laughs> right. Remind us, this happened not once, but twice. Sure. It was it was twice last year. And so the one that everyone nationally and even in Oregon is probably most familiar with is what happened towards the end of the session in June when Republicans, there's only um, just under a dozen Senate Republicans and Democrats of super majorities in both chambers. Mm-hmm. So the only way that the Republicans were able to sh- shut down business and stall this climate change bill that they didn't like was that they would leave. They actually left the state in order to deny Democrats the quorum that they needed in order to keep bringing up bills and voting on them. 
went to Idaho, right? There's some they question if they were in Washington or Idaho or where <laughs> yeah, they were at one point. Yeah, there were lots of rumors, rumors about where the Republicans were, but eventually they were located in Idaho. Not by the state police, but... Um, <laughs> this was a, a very tense episode at times. Um, and Ted, I mean, really the cap-and-trade legislation was the heart of the most prominent uh, national walkout, I guess, the one that resonated nationally. Um, can you remind folks what that whole legislation was about um, and and it is going to be the centerpiece of of this uh, 35-day session that we're starting here. This is kind of the boilerplate that I put into all the stories that I write about cap and trade because you know you know what is this thing Mm -hmm. that we're getting into. So it is a system that we'd establish hard and gradually declining caps on carbon emissions or carbon dioxide equivalents in the state and require polluters in the transportation, utility, and industrial sectors to buy emissions allowances uh, to cover every metric ton of their carbon dioxide equivalent emissions. And as the the cap came down, and what they're aiming for is an emissions level that's 45% below 1990 levels uh, by 2035, that's an interim goal, and 80% below by 2050, so that the supply of these emissions allowances would contract uh, along with a declining cap, and they would become more expensive, and the theory is that um, as they became more expensive, polluters would take steps to uh, avoid the cost. Um, that would be in electrifying vehicles, mm-hmm. um, going to renewable power in the utility sector. Transitioning to a clean economy. Right, right? more efficient production technology in the industrial sector. And, um, yeah, that's that's kind of the baseline of what, what the cap-and-trade and, you know, trading is really, you know, you'll be able to trade these emissions allowances on a market. There'll be a secondary market mm-hmm. and a, a state auction annually. Um, and that these companies in the transportation sector, utilities, or the industrial companies will all have to participate in that. There'll be a substantial amount of revenue generated, mm-hmm. and that revenue is going to be pumped back into, you know, adaptation and uh, you know, various programs again to uh, back into the transportation sector, and the utility sector, um, back to industrial companies, in some cases to offset the cost that um, they are going to incur, but uh, often in investments that will help communities adapt and uh, you know will go towards wildfire mitigation. Um, yeah, so there's a, there's quite a bit of money that's going to be generated by this as well. Where's the rub from Republican standpoint uh, on this legislation? Well, so the argument has always been that Oregon isn't going to have much of a an effect on global emissions. If it, you know, if they all disappeared tomorrow, it would be a tiny, tiny fraction of one percent. Uh, why saddle us with a you know system that's going to cost businesses and consumers a ton of money and put them in a disadvantage with those in neighboring states mm-hmm. um, when you know our, our impact is actually so little. So there's that argument, and then there's just simply, uh, you know, there's an element of climate denialism in the Republican Party as well. People who just absolutely refuse to 
admit that you know this is a, an issue at all. Yeah, federally, nationally, locally, right? right. I mean, it, right. regardless of where you are. Um, who are the key players this go-around, Ted? Are there any new faces uh, who are going to be leading the fight from the Republican standpoint on, on the cap-and-trade legislation? And then uh, from the Democratic side, um, you know, I think of Milwaukee Representative Karin Power and, and uh, Michael Denbro were very involved in this last year, but are they still around? Uh, they are still around. They're still sponsors on the Senate and House side bills. Um, and you have, you know, Lee Beyer, uh, Springfield Democrat, is a sponsor of uh, the legislation. Um, Arnie Roblin from Coos Bay, who was a holdout last time on the Democratic side, is now a sponsor of a new version of the legislation. And that gets Democrats close to what it is that they need on the Senate side in terms of votes, if, mm-hmm. if that works out you know, sort of the same way it did last time. And there were you know, several Democratic holdouts that ultimately killed the bill. Um, Laurie Lauren Sanderson was the, one from Gresham. Um, there's a special dispensation for Boeing, which is a large employer in her district mm-hmm. in this version of the bill. And maybe that brings her aboard as well. Um, on the Republican side, uh, I, you know, it's it's probably the Senate side leadership. You know, Herman Berchiger has already held a press conference saying that he's not taking a walk off uh, or walk out off the table. Right. Um, Fred Gerard was involved in the he's a Republican from Staten and he was involved in the discussions during the interim trying to come up with a plan that would be acceptable to Republicans and he ended up and that was that took place in uh, Senator uh, Peter Courtney is the you know Senate president his office kind of uh, put together some talks during the interim and Fred Gerard ultimately left those because he you know he said to me he was disgusted by them and mm. you know again I don't, I'm not sure that there's a bill that is acceptable to him he really was looking for the state to go if it was going to do anything to use economic incentives and tax credits to try and you know encourage this behavior versus a mm-hmm. you know a regulatory scheme that, that has a stick to it Hil- um, Hillary you had a great story that kind of um, put this I guess the new options that are being considered on the table and compared it to other major state legislation that was kind of regionalizing, turning, uh, and this was looking at minimum wage primarily, right, most recently in folks' mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you describe a little bit that dynamic of like whether cap and trade uh, could ultimately be something that Portlanders feel first versus the rest of the state? Yeah, just high level on that. Um, I was exploring something that, of course, Ted has reported the most on. But for the transportation sector, one way that the Democrats are trying to appeal, or that they were they were really hoping that they'd be able to bring some Republicans along. It doesn't sound, Ted, like you've been hearing that they've had any success with this. Um, and certainly in my story, you know, one of the key representatives I talked to on this, she's always opposed the policy, and it didn't change it for her, but. It would start the um, it would start the carbon fees on gasoline on and diesel in the Portland metro area, and then it would roll it out to some of the other metro areas in the state. I mean, if they if they were consuming what was it, ten million gallons of, of fuel, fuel a year, and yeah. then it's not even certain whether it would extend to some of the rural areas of the state at all because. Yeah. 
almost 20 counties that have to opt into it. Yeah, if you're out in Harney County, you're probably not, uh, you don't have public transit available. You might not have electric vehicle charging stations and you might be driving a lot. Yeah, and you wouldn't have some of the other options that we have here, even like carpooling and, and hey, maybe you drive a, you know, F-350 or something and it's going to be, (laughs) you're going to be buying a lot of gas. Yeah, it could it could be expensive. Um, you know, the other thing that they changed to try and bring some of the industrial companies aboard, and again, there, there still is this uh, Republican theme out there that the sky is falling. You know, with this legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, in any case, they the the Dems have tried to be more lenient with industrial customers as well, and you know, only regulate their direct process emissions as opposed to you know the natural gas that they burn uh, during production and if you uh, are using the most efficient technology to produce uh, you can get free emissions allowances for you know virtually in perpetuity you have to cover your at least your process emissions 97 okay. percent of them but you have to demonstrate that you're doing that so you know there's another set of concessions and the climate activists and environmentalists that have been following this are you know they're calling this a race to the bottom at this point and and say you know look climate delay at this point has become climate denial and you know we need to act we don't need to roll over um, backwards for you know these rural constituents or any more for industrial companies they want to hold the line here so there's going to be some debate in the session and certainly blowback from from that quarter that we're not being stringent enough right it, we are in an election year right and the uh, the democrats have a super majority right in both chambers um but there's a lot of retirements coming there's a lot of new faces uh it's kind of an interesting time how many seats did you i think you've reported this are there 12 or oh it I was mean, at every, least 16 you know. and i think it's gone up since then that we just characterize as open seats mm-hmm. so it means that you don't have a long time incumbent in there and you know i was going to mention that a couple of the key democrats who had helped kill that climate change bill during mm-hmm. last year's session Lori Monis Anderson in the Senate, um, and she's in the leadership over there. And then Senator Arnie Roblin from Coos Bay. Both are leaving. Right. They're yeah. both leaving. So how does that change what they're going to do this during the session? Um, might they be a little bit more willing to just, you know, put all their chips down and, and really um, use up any political capital that lame ducks have left <laughs> at that point? And Coos Bay, of course, is a it's it's a district that the Democrats are probably going to have to work hard to hold on to that seat, which you know gave them that supermajority that mm-hmm. they have that many in the Senate. Um, so it's going to be interesting. This time around, given you know Peter Courtney's health issues, um, is Ginny Burdick going to be in terms of whipping the, the Senate side? I mean, I think Tina Kotek kind of had her house in order mm-hmm. for behind this bill last time. And, and well, she might have, but now the uh, new House Republican leader, Christine Drazen from Canby, she has said she's not taking a walkout off the table over in the House, and it might be a bit more like herding cats over there because they've got a lot more lawmakers are 60 in the House versus yeah. 30 total in the Senate. Um, but she's putting that out there. So who knows? Kotech might be more challenged this year. Burdick, you know, there's been questions that people are asking behind the scenes about how long she's planning to stay around, too. Right. I haven't heard anything um, official 
from her. So in terms of who's got a strong hand leading the Senate, that's going to be something to watch. There's a lot of flux. <laughs> There's a lot There's of a uncertainty. There's a lot of flux this session. Um, what options are available, I guess, uh, you know, to Democrats, I guess, since this is their baby, um, if uh, cap and trade doesn't go anywhere uh, in, in the session here uh, starting in February? Well, there's always the ballot, and there are several climate ballot measures that have already been filed um, that would force the state to go 100% renewable by 2045. Um, there is executive action as well that the governor um, could take, and she has already stated that that's an avenue that she would mm. uh, explore, but she hasn't acted on it. Um, and Like what? I mean, can you give an example of something that Governor Brown could do? On the industrial side, in the transportation sector, just by fiat, you know, establish these emissions limits mm -hmm. and leave it to you know, the DEQ to come up with a program uh, to actually regulate that. That's how California... Uh, initially adopted its carbon cap and trade system. It, it didn't legislate it. You know, it, it basically just established the goals um, and then left it to the California Resources Board to actually come up with a program, a cap and trade program is, is uh, to actually enforce the, the goals. Um, and that's subsequently been you know, ratified by their legislature. But it is, you know, it, we could go kind of a similar route as well. Um, and the governor but there's some question as to you know what the extent of those executive powers are certainly but uh she's already been out there saying i'm you know this is a route i intend to go if we can't pass this legislation and she's not running in 2022 so she's kind of you know a free agent i guess indeed um let's take a break and then we'll talk about uh, other issues to expect uh, from the session down in salem Hillary, uh, what can we expect in terms of revenue, overall budget forecast uh, stuff that might pop up uh, down in Salem? Can you walk us through? Because I know I have a hard time tracking this uh, with the biennium and the, the two-year budget cycles. Sure. Well, we've got around a $24 billion um, budget, state budget, and I'm just talking about purely state tax money and other money, lottery funds and stuff that Oregon allocates over two years. And we've just been having a, a really good economy for a long time now. And the revenue forecast that mm -hmm. the state bases its budgets on, um, they just keep going up and up. And so there's been some discussion about whether the, well, certainly the asks, um, the requests that the lawmakers get are a lot higher than what they ever want to allocate. Um, even though somehow they seem to spend quite a bit of it. <laughs> Shoot for the moon, right? And even <laughs> right. if you miss, you'll land among the stars. Yeah. when you, I mean, I've heard sometimes that when you're in a good economy and there's a ton of money that seems to be available, it's almost harder than when you're in a recession and there's a lot more talk about, well, we need to tighten our belts. So mm -hmm. some people might say there's as much as $1 billion available, which is huge, um, but the budgeting, the top budgeting lawmakers on Ways and Means, they really want to stick to just allocating half a billion dollars. And the governor seems to be on board with that, too. That doesn't seem like a small amount. We're talking $500 million. Right. And that is just money that was forecast to come in in this two-year budget cycle um, as of November above 
what the state was expecting when they set the budget last year. And how much bonding authority is there out there, additionally? Yeah, it looks like that would be over $300 million. And so the universities are coming back this session to ask for more money to largely do remodels because last year they were kind of rebuffed by the legislature that said, yeah. hey, you guys want all these these shiny new, brand new buildings, you know, be a little bit more realistic here. These are the capital construction bonds that come through. And I guess it'll be interesting with Ed Ray, um, the, you know, longtime Oregon State president um, leaving, um, you know, and he's always said that the Bend campus uh, deserves to be treated as its own independent campus for OSU. So maybe they'll, who knows, be some requests in there or, or money for those campuses. Yeah, I can't remember if they were on the list. And of course, we used to have a really good higher ed <laughs> reporter who probably would be all over that stuff and it deserves its own coverage. Um, but I think that that all will be really interesting. And I should mention that Last session, we kept having um, really good, back in 2019, we kept having mm -hmm. really good revenue forecasts. We were getting more money and more money. Of course, we're all getting a bunch of it back right now as the um, kicker income tax rebate on our taxes, or credit, excuse me. Yeah, remind folks how that works. <laughs> so they're not getting, uh, they're not getting that money in their pocket, right? We're very unusual on that. <laughs> I can't remember if we're the absolute only state in the nation that does it. We probably are. Um, but it's just going to be a credit on your 2019 taxes when you're filing mm -hmm. it this year. And it depends on how much taxes you paid. But for someone making around mm, mid-30s, 36 grand, I think it was going to be over $300 would be your kicker. So, you know, go from there on how much your household income is and what you paid. Yeah. And the reason that the lawmakers last year did want to hold on to more money is because it's really uncertain when we're going to go into a recession. Mm -hmm. So they're just trying to have some savings there. As we've kind of, I, I've discussed with, uh, and we've reported on with Mike Rogaway and uh, other reporters in the newsroom, it, it just seems like at some point the, the boom must end, but um, onward it goes. And we'll have another forecast in mid-February, so they'll definitely take that into account. Um, beyond higher ed, what other priorities uh, are lawmakers uh, or uh, interest groups um, f uh, or uh, agencies, I guess, seeking um, potential spending? Well, from what I've heard, uh, and I need to drill down this a little bit more, but from what I've heard, some of the top things that they're planning to spend on this session are uh, more money for Department of Human Services. They want some more money for child welfare. Some of that is just because we are in such a good economy. The feds are not going to give us as much money mm -hmm. to pay for our foster care system. The Oregon Health Authority supposedly wants some more money to um, deal with mental health issues. Let's see what else. Uh, the House Speaker Tony, Tina Kotek wants over $100 million to deal with housing and homelessness issues. She also wants to declare a state of emergency around that. Um, the governor, Kate Brown, wants some money for wildfire. She does. She wants $200 million. Wow. And that's a figure that would recur annually. Um, this is based on some recommendations that came out of a wildfire preparedness council that she impaneled last year and came forward in November with 37 recommendations. And she's got a, a very broad bill, an omnibus sort of proposal that proposes to treat 5.6 million acres of our forest that is sort of overstocked and um, laden with fuels and small trees and uh, prone to wildfire. And she wants to treat 5.6 million acres over the next 20 years, which is equivalent to you know, the size of the state of New Jersey. Wow. And uh, Are so these both state and national forests? 
They are. Yeah. A big portion of, of this is federal land, U.S. Forest Service and BLM, and then private forest land as well. And there's a tiny fraction that's state land. But uh, she's proposing, and the council has proposed $200 million annually to treat 300,000 acres. And uh, I don't think there's a, a, a snowball's chance that you know we're going to spend $200 million on, on forest treatment. But you know, there could be, uh, you know, I think the, the head of the Wildfire Council is hoping the state will come forward with 25 to $30 million in this biennium to start this up, and then they can come back in, in subsequent sessions and, uh, you know, prove that this has been worthwhile. Um, they also want to spend maybe $20 million annually on 50 new positions at the, or 50 to 70 new positions at the Oregon Department of Forestry to beef up their firefighting capabilities. Um, yeah, so that's another budget asset that's probably going to come through um, on that side. Yeah, and folks who listen to the podcast or read The Oregonian will remember uh, Ted's uh, really a great series, Failing Forestry, where he talks about a lot of these issues at the forestry department and the wildlife fire costs that uh, Oregon um, and other states uh, in the West are increasingly um, having to bear with climate change and um, you know, yeah, there's bad ca- there's, fire seasons. There's kind of an interesting political connection here with the climate bill as well. The climate bill has dedicated 25% of the revenues uh, in the, uh, from the industrial and natural gas sectors to this forest treatment program. And that could bring in you know, 25 to $35 million for this stuff in the next three years if the climate bill passed. And, and that's also kind of a carrot for Republicans who want rural economic development, as, is, you know, or as are some of these wildfire bills. I mean, if we were to come close to spending $200 million, $100 million annually, that's that's a big shot in the arm. You know, wildfire and restoration is big business in rural Oregon. And I think they're hoping that they can keep some of the Republicans in their seats if, you know, by adding some of these carrots into the um, into the mix. Um, we'll see where that goes. I mean, I'm just wondering how successful they'd be because just this morning I talked to Senator Herman Bertschiger, yeah. the Senate Republican leader, and he was kind of ridiculing some of the governor's ideas on this, saying, why would we spend our hard-earned money um, basically sending it to President Trump, referencing using it on federal lands? Oh, interesting. And we're, we're talking here just a couple of days before session begins. Too, well, that so. is interesting. He has his own wildfire bill. It's a, kind of a modernization bill for uh, the Department of Forestry, and he wants to add a bunch of positions. Um he is also he owns a wildland firefighting business or did and now his son does that is a contractor to ODF and has been for years. So you know there's some direct uh, <laughs> gains that, that only, may come out uh, of that. Lawmaker uh, who's involved uh, with the wildfire contracting business either, right? Because um, I think Representative Cedric Hayden, who's a Republican over in the House, um, has a company too. Good. I didn't know that, but well, good business, I guess. Um, what's not going to be on the table down in Salem this year? Well, it's hard to think of things in a way when you look at all the, there's more than 200 bills, I think about 260 that have been um, filed or introduced into the session so far. It could, um, that could always change. They won't all obviously get passed, but one that I don't see in there is something trying to close loopholes on uh, mandatory vaccinations for kids going to school. So Oregon has 
a few different exemptions right now, you know, personal, personal, philosophical and religious. And it proved hugely controversial last year to the extent that Kate Brown, the governor, um, killed the um, vaccination mandate bill last year, along with a gun bill in order to bring Senate Republicans back from their first walkout. And people might have recalled, uh, as both of us, the parents of small children, um, there was a measles outbreak, uh, both yeah. in Oregon and and uh, in Clark County, Southwest West Washington. And there's Washington. some, there are some people in the community, whether it's someone who's um, an adult and you're you have a compromised immune system, you're sick, or it could be um, a little baby that can't get vaccinated yet. So there you go. So there, yeah, it is a lot. And it's, you know, it's pretty clear that there's a lot of very beefy bills that are not necessarily consistent with that short session mentality of let's, you know, take care of some details here, deal with some emergency funding issues. There's a lot of meat on the table. Yeah, yeah, there's there always yeah. so much controversy about that, or at least um, talking point. That's that's the talking point that we're going to hear every single session because it really has always been, or at least in the last five years or so that I've been covering this, there have always been big policy proposals. So 2016, it was minimum wage and the so-called coal to clean bill that doubled the state's renewable energy mandate as well. That all somehow, I can't. I kind of can't believe that that all got through in 35 days back in 2016. What's the, the deadline for Bill to actually make it out of committee? It's pretty quick, isn't it? Ooh, I, mean, I need to look that up, so cut this out of there. <laughs> but I was hearing something like in the first week or by February 13th. Um, February 13th is, I Everything think had to is. get out of, for example, the Senate, so clearing the first chamber. Right. That's pretty quick. Yeah, February 13th, I guess, would be the second week. And you've reported recently as well, Hillary, that uh, campaign finance uh, uh, campaign finance limits will not be discussed. Thanks for reminding me. So, <laughs> well, we are going to have at least one campaign finance bill this session that has a good chance of getting through. But that bill would actually put Oregon's existing campaign finance or campaign um, contribution limits on hold until at least July 2021. So effectively, we don't have contribution limits. The sky's the limit on how much you can give here. Uh, you know, Phil Knight's given a lot of money in the last governor's race in 2018. But because it's been so litigated in the courts and because the courts have found that our state constitution um, doesn't allow contribution limits because of our um, freedom of speech protections, there are effectively no limits. And in 2006, um, Oregon voters passed a law to set limits and ban union and corporation um, contributions in ca to campaigns. But that, that's been on hold. And it's really convoluted, but a Multnomah um, contribution limit law has been appealed to the, it's been um, up at the Supreme Court, and depending on how it gets decided, they could rule that limits are actually okay. And if they do, the statewide limits would come back. But um, Oregon House Democrats do want to pass a bill that would essentially put the statewide limits on hold until 2021. Clear as mud, right? <laughs> yeah. And circling back to what you'd initially, so circling back to what you'd initially asked about, Governor Kate Brown did tell reporters a couple weeks ago that she thinks this is not the time to 
pass campaign finance limits during this short session. It's something that lawmakers were trying to do last year. They seemed like they were getting close, and then they just dropped it near the end of the session. And we're going to be asked to decide in Oregon in November whether to amend our Constitution to allow contribution limits. So if Governor Brown and the legislature Mm -hmm. don't want to pass limits this session, uh, voters in Oregon will essentially be going to the ballot in November, potentially um, voting on limits without any idea of what the limits would actually be. Well, that's going to be interesting to see. (laughs) And again, there's the whole prospects of the federal election lingering over everything as well. This is going to be a fascinating month and uh, uh, a fascinating year. And thank you both for your expertise and for uh, covering this stuff. It's super important. Sure. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. Read all of Hillary and Ted's reporting at OregonLive.com slash politics. Check out my stories on the transportation beat at OregonLive.com slash commuting or follow me on Twitter at Andrew Thien. Catch up on all the past episodes by subscribing to Beat Check anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks to those listeners who have reviewed the show in Apple Podcasts. If you appreciate or enjoy the show, it really does help us. So please leave a rating and review to help us spread the word. Until next time.